again with another syllabus entry, syllabus journal, and we're going to add a little bit more to the record here. We're discussing the late great imposition of esoteric pagan mystery religion and sorcery from Egypt and Babylon as it has been inculcated into the traditions of Christianity and overtaking the biblical holidays, overshadowing the resurrection of Jesus Christ with the Easter Bunny. So we're going to make sure we keep the record here straight. So here, another beautiful entry, and we thank you for your support. Continued patronage of our what we last for. So welcome back. We're returning again to do another hard-hitting and intellectually edifying episode of our of our broadcast here. So in this week, in this particular instance, on this show, I want to focus in like a laser on something I think that's, that's extremely important here. And it's fundamental in the essence of our future here in America and in focusing in on what is the most integral and fundamental aspects of our political system of our democratic republic, our popular democracy that we have here in the United States, and how the the drafters and the the founders, the forefathers of our country, how they established this particular country and this nation. And and just as we look at the way that in the background of this the issue of America, it's revolutionary and it's it's quite amazing. And of course if you've been living here your whole life, you've not traveled very much to other states or cities, which is a vast preponderance of people, a great innumerable host of individuals in our country who have as much sovereignty being part of the, the citizen citizenry that everyone else does. Those who are more educated or more traveled, you can see the problem that if you haven't been out a lot, if you haven't been out to other places, you don't know how things work in other places in the world. You can't relate. You can't put it in your mind and imagine how how the things are working. But it, so it's good to to listen and to learn in order to find out more and to educate ourselves. And those who are most educated most educated among us realize how little we actually know and how little we're, we're capable of knowing. How many books that we'll never get time to read. We have to rely on the knowledge of other people and we have to rely on each other to fill in the gaps of knowledge and, and experience. So as we go forward, America is a profoundly unique and really happenstance of the, the, the awakening and the appearance of America in the world history is an awesome spectacle. And it's a light in the darkness of imperialism and slavery, mass wholesale, worldwide slavery, the transatlantic slave passages, just the, the, the concept that slavery was somehow a, a religiously consecrated factor of, of existence, just a, a part of reality that can't be changed, an immutable factor of life. And, uh, and that's how for many, many centuries... And really since the dawn of time, since time immemorial, that was the hold that slavery had over humanity. So that slavery was something that just was a function of the chaos of the world and it couldn't be changed and it couldn't be addressed. 
and uh, you had you, you could work with it you could buy slaves you could sell slaves but the fact of the traffic of it would just exist unchanged and unchallenged for forever and that was until america until america came along and of course the british were early in starting to like we talked about in other times we had william wilberforce other methodists other christian protestant christian groups who could no longer their, their conscience could no longer allow for the existence of slavery and just the sight of it was so wretched and horrifying that it revolted the mind so people began to reject slavery i mean it, it, it was this kind of uphill battle for many decades and for a long time many thousands and thousands of, of people in chains being taken across the world to never return home again and you can see it's this terrible fate that is the same fate that befell the people of of of, of israel if you go back in the bible there was 12 tribes who were very powerfully occupying the land of israel and these, these, you know, all around Jerusalem and, and these different territories. And early on, the Assyrian Empire, the Imperium of Syria, Assyria, came down and attacked and took away and destroyed 10 of those tribes, 10 out of 12. So only two remained. And they took all those people that they defeated in this terrible battle, great war of conquest. They didn't get all the way across the river and get, get over and to uh, take Jerusalem and Judah. And, so, and, and some of these other tribes, but most of the 10 tribes that were in the north were, were absolutely destroyed, murdered, and the remnants carried off by the Assyrians to far off lands where they lived out their lives in, in far away exile. That's what happened. That's what the Assyrians did. They took them captive and took them away into slavery and they never were to return. So it was a devastating and a catastrophic destruction of the nation of Israel that left behind only Judah and, and, and the great city of Jerusalem there. And so that, that's the history of Jerusalem and the Jews that they survived that, that conquest. And later on, much later on, even the city of, of Jerusalem and, and the tribe of Judah and the surrounding, uh, maybe it was Manassas and Issachar, or was, there was a few other tribes in the in the region that survived, but they were beset upon by, in later centuries, the Babylonian Empire, which rose, Nebuchadnezzar and the Empire of Babylon, would attack and take away the tribe of Judah into captivity, just the same way that their previous forefathers, the, the Assyrians, would do. And so you can see that, um, in truth, the, the act of military conquest and enslavement of peoples is a function of war and a function of, of imperialism that's gone back a long ways. It's just an aspect of the brutality and the primitive nature of mankind that they make war and destroy each other. And so at this late stage, many, many centuries later in history, when we have this point where the, the, the people of Africa are, are co conquering one another and enslaving one another and selling their enemies off to the the Europeans, and then, uh, and equally so, this, this something we see the John Jaweed militias still doing today as an act of Islamic militarism. And you can see that Islam early on in seventh century Israeli would be doing the same exact thing. They would be setting it up as an integral principle and foundational aspect of their religion that they uh, would go ahead and conquer people and kill them off and whoever would uh, not submit to Islam would be executed or perhaps enslaved as, as the will of Allah, as the written sacred text. So that the written sacred text of, of Islam in the Quran and then the Hadiths and the different writings that are foundational in Islam, that are the principal belief system that you have to believe in order to go to Allah's heaven. You have to believe that you uh, have to kill the Christians and the Jews and subject them wherever you find them to Islam and cut off their heads and enslave them. So it, it's an aspect of religious sacred duty 
to enslave the infidel. And, and equally so. I mean, we can't just put it all on Islam. Before Islam even existed, the religion of Rome, Roman religion is what we call it, which is really just a, a dressed up paganism with certain accoutrements of a Christian symbolism overlayered on top. And everyone now gets down on their knees to the Pope and, and in order to practice the, Christian, the Christianity of Jesus Christ, our Savior, they get down on their knees and pray the Pope's way. So in order to understand that before Islam came into existence, the papacy and the Vatican and the Roman church had already sanctioned slavery and had had slaves in their midst for centuries, for many, many long centuries. Feudal lords of, of Europe, medieval kings, accepted and allowed slavery. People who fell into disfavor, people who fell into debt, people who could no longer protect themselves, people that had to be dealt with by the, the state apparatus, if you will, would, be fi- would find themselves just summarily sold into slavery. Famously, Rome, before the church state took over, famously Rome, the Im- imperial city, the the empire itself was full of slaves so that there was more slaves packed in the districts of Rome than there were actual legal citizens. And over the course of time, uh, it became uh, legal to try to buy your citizenship so you could go from being a slave to being a... So you could buy into the the nationalism of Roman imperialism by working off your, your debt. And in the same way, many people from London, indentured servants, people who had bad credit, people who went to debtor's prison were, were sent off to the Americas or famously to Australia to just be exiled away and never heard from again, to just be sent away to work in wretched slavery, having no good standing or no good name or no way to earn your own you know, fortune or to have your own fate. You were just doomed to the, the poverty and the penury of slavish debtor's prison. So this whole question of slavery goes far beyond any single factor like skin tone, the particular melanin content of our skin that we get from our parents, whether we have a complexion that's darker or lighter. I know that when we go out in the sun and sunbathe at the beach, we all get a tan. All of us get a little bit of more sun. We get a little bit of the, the melanin in our skin pigments pop out a little more and we, and we have a little more darkened tone in our in our flesh so that our, our skin is constantly in the, in the pigments and the melanin is constantly responding to the sun. And this, this interesting reaction of our skin tone, the, the evolution of our bodies, the adaptation of our genes that allow for us to go out in the, the sun and for our skin to, to have a reaction to protect itself from just being burned up, giving us different beautiful colored pigments in our skin has become such a phenomenal distraction and such a taboo for us as people that it could be it can barely be uh be overstated how dramatic the skin pigment and color complexion in our skin has so drastically affected our society especially today through science and a little bit of reason and education we we began to learn the truth that that people aren't different at all and this skin color doesn't really have any real meaning beyond whether you have curly eyelashes or straight ones or whether you have long skinny fingers or short stubby ones it, it doesn't make any difference how our particular genotype in our genes built itself up and constructed itself through all the amino acids that build up these proteins causing different kinds of cell division and the cell division creates different kinds of structures in our bodies muscle tissue veins blood bone that phenomenal ability of, for our morphogenesis to just arise and the shape to be taken out of, si- of single cells that just replicate themselves and the morphological shape of our being in our mother's belly just comes into shape I mean 
and you understand we, we're, we are seeds and our remarkable nature and our human physiology how it looks on the outside of ourselves how light or dark our complexions might be from whatever part of the world we're in because people come from different parts of the world whether it's India or Africa people come from different parts of the world and their relationship to the equator will dictate how much melanin in their skin they have so this part of racism this part of the Marxist left trying to use some kind of wedge ideology some kind of splintering idea virus on the American people like a weapon to try to divide us against ourselves when Marx was around there it was class issues it was issues of people who were born into poverty and born into great wealth and just the, the just instituted permanent state of our bank credit that allowed us to allowed humanity just to either suffer on or or be born into great privilege and aristocracy that wedge issue between the rich and poor was something that they seized on and now nowadays I guess we're all so rich and we all have such an equal access to wealth and to opportunity and to privilege that there's really no more way to seize upon the Mar- Marxist rhetoric about class differences so now they have to seize on racial differences and try to agitate stigmatize and instigate the populace into outrage and like we always say internecine rioting and infighting and political and then, of course, this kind of political warfare is most effective on the poor and those who have not been out, have not traveled a lot among different kinds of people, haven't seen different states in the Union, haven't been to Idaho. You ever been to Idaho? You see what I'm saying? We don't. If we haven't been to Idaho, then we don't know what it looks like, per se. We don't know how the people are. We don't know how the things work there or the, the prevailing attitudes, the nomenclature, how people speak. We don't know it. We're not familiar with it. And so there, there's a great vast preponderance of knowledge There's a whole where firsthand experience might be. So we have to rely on the knowledge of others, the people that have been there, have been to Idaho, have been to different places and have been around the world. You can see in their mind how the things are there. So that's we're all relying on one another to complete and fulfill knowledge. And so the people who have the greatest deficit of information and experience and knowledge are going to be the most prone to be angry and hateful towards that which they're not familiar with. Or people are scared of what they don't know. They're scared of people that haven't been around. Types of people who have certain cultural backgrounds and certain practices and how they speak or do their traditions. We're not all intimately familiar with one another's situation. And that's why I want to do this whole background and discuss in more depth the nature of America's founding. And we were founded as a reaction, as a political consequence to many centuries of tyrannical religious murder at the hands of Rome. So you gotta understand that things as they stand today in this revolution in America, the mindset and the ideological prison that people lived in in the medieval era, the dark ages, for many centuries throughout Europe is today broken. But back then people didn't have the ability to think freely. There was no freedom of conscience. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that you're not even free to determine what your own conscience dictates? So when they want to go out in the, in the square and, and go get the, the, the miller or the baker or the baker's wife or just grab somebody out of the crowd and, and accuse them of heresy and burn them and, and torture them and break their bones for, for a few weeks and then bring them out into the town square where a person's already practically beat to death and ruined anyway. They bring them out and they want to burn them alive in front of the whole town as a heretic against good Christian religion because the Roman priest said so because the Roman priest dictates who the soldiers burn. Right, so it's that complexity of terror and absolute religious tyranny that every single city and hamlet and, and backwater town of Europe suffered under for many centuries, for a thousand years, and it all started when, as soon as the the papacy had built up its army to go fight Islam and and fight over Jerusalem, who would control what the Pope considered to be um, his city. 
he considered Jerusalem to be the holy city of Christendom. So the dirty uh, infidels of Islam, which could not possess it and control it and run it, hold on to the Pope's city, right? It was uh, an extension of the papacy's religious power to control Jerusalem. So when Islam came along and, and, and had control of it, there had to be a great war. So they got together all the crusading armies of Europe, brought them down to fight the Saracens, to fight the Muslims. And when they got back from doing that, they had a great grand military phalanx in the service of the Pope. And then since they had no more wars to fight, it had lost control of Jerusalem to the powerful armies of Saladin the Great and other, and other conquerors of Islam. When they got back, licking their wounds from the crusade wars, the papacy and his grand armies of holy religion had nothing better to focus on except for those particular sects and Christian groups out there that they considered to be heretical. They wouldn't bend the knee and pay the tax to the papal Caesar. And when these groups, these Christian groups, would not submit, there were certain Augustinian monks and certain intellectual scholars, great Gerard and other, other historical figures who made it their business to build up a great animosity toward the, these other Christian churches, these other Christian groups. Famously, there was the Cathars, who were supposed to be some kind of polluted Gnostics. But if you go back and look carefully and cut out all the propaganda, it turns out the Cathars are just primitive Christian believers who didn't believe the Pope's way. And then you have the Waldensians there in France. They were followers of Peter Waldo, these Waldensians, and they were all up in the Alps. They lived all over and freely had Bibles, read the Bibles, believed them, and held Christian churches outside of the control of Rome. They didn't accept the, the sacraments of Rome. They didn't accept the idea that you had to go confess your sins to the priest in order to receive absolution. It's not in the Bible. It's nowhere. It's nowhere written in any Holy Script. It's just something they made up 500 years, 600 years after Christ was even on the earth. Something that it kind of loosely resembles the previous pagan religious system that was in place there, this Mithraic cult, this idea of having a father and having these different seven levels of initiation was all Mithraic cult. It was, it was a secret society, a secret cult that existed within Rome before the time of Christ. And their seventh level of initiation was for men only. And it was, and you became what was known as a paternoster. And a paternoster, it's old Latin words, Greek root words, it just mean father. And you're a pater, paternoster, your father priest. And this ancient Mithraic cult of the paternoster and the seven levels of initiation were something that were Gnostic foundation roots of Catholicism. So you have the seven sacraments and you have the father priest, the paternoster, wears the robes up there and you he, he has the center place of sacerdotal power and everyone everyone sits around and, and receives the power that the priest brings down with his ritual. He says the words everybody and he holds up the thing and everyone venerates the, the little wafer and, and that's that's how magic and sorcery and power the source of your power that's where the word sorcery comes from the source of your power is from the priest's ritual that's your religion it's mithraic but, you, you, but let's, let's just let's just digress back later on after the appearance of Jesus Christ and his challenge to Rome and to the Roman governor Pontius Pilate and his appeal to the people and his claim and his rightful duty to stand as king of Jerusalem tyrannists of Rome crucified and killed Jesus Christ of course he rose again three days later but the point is is that this mithraic cult paternoster religion of the priest father father priest religion right and the seven initiation levels of mithraic religion was the priestcraft and the magical system of power that controlled rome so later on when they started to introduce christianity 
They didn't actually fundamentally change the religion of Mithraism. They just super laid the different Christian symbols over top. And the reason why we have to have this whole uh, discussion and background history discussing Rome and Roman religion and how it is really just a counterfeit Christianity and the fact that these Roman political system, it was always imperialism, it was always Julius Caesar's, um, the emperor, right? And that's that's the seat, the, the papacy, the Pope took over. That was the seat of power, was a global system of geopolitical control. So the Pope wasn't just interested in sitting in there and doing the sacerdotal rites and ministering to the people's needs. He wanted to control kings and nations and armies and direct war. And he did direct war. The papacy was the most murderous institution that was only challenged by Islam. Only Islam had the power to fight against the papacy's armies. None of the other kings had the power to do it. Not England or Spain or France or Portugal. No, no one had the power to challenge the Pope. He controlled all their armies virtually and their religion. And when they crossed themselves and, 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 and fought in the name of holy religion, it was for the Pope. And then the king would, would was just would change. The king was just secondary because the Pope could knock the king out and change the king. And you see what I'm saying? It was It's like a chessboard of power. And the papacy was the strongest, the most powerful piece on the chessboard. So when the, when the papacy comes back with their armies after the crusade wars and focuses in on the followers of Peter Waldo and focuses in on the Cathars and, and other, you'll see this throughout history, the Gallicans later in France, no one was allowed to conduct their own religious freedom. Freedom of religion was not allowed. You were allowed to conduct the religious principles of the papacy and of Rome. And if you didn't, then you were practicing a heresy and you were subject to be murdered. That was the law. That was the law until America came. The inquisitions of Rome and the inquisitional dungeons, they were on the books and they existed legally until the early 1800s, like so let's say 1804. And then finally, it just changed its name. The, the Holy Office of the Inquisition became the Holy Office of the Doctrine of the Faith. So they, they switched the office, they switched the name, and they, they just they stopped murdering people. Of course, the, slaves, the slave trade continued to, to roll for a while longer. And even though the British and the French had said really nice things and, and done things in their own countries to, to resist slave tra- the slave trade, they didn't destroy it or get rid of it or end it. It still continued to exist on. So we have to get to the point where very late in history, in the 1860s, we're going to have the Civil War, and when this whole issue of, of the, the, the enslavement of human beings is going to come to a head. There's going to be a final battle, a final conflict that's just deciding the fate and deciding the outcome of world slavery. The acceptance of it, the ability of people to perform it. And of course, if you look carefully through history, you can see that, look carefully at our modern times, we can see a resurgence of the slave trade. The Jajweed militias in North Africa, different places in Africa, people are sold in, in, in slavery in, in the Islamic market. People are still captured, kidnapped, and sold away to, to other people who, who buy these and purchase these slaves. There's a, still a slave market in the world. So this issue is not just subjective. There's a, a certain reality to it. And we can all look back in our, in our past and find that our ancestors were at one time or another enslaved if you go back far enough. So making slavery just strictly a a racial ordeal is positively stupid and foolish and ignorant and uninformed because the slave trade was something that was practiced by, by Arabs under the Islamic faith for centuries. It was practiced by the Catholic Church all throughout Europe which is going to primarily be pale white people. You're never going to have a pope who's not white, right? It's just that's a fact. It's never going to happen. And the same thing is, is true for the monarch of England, the king of England, the, the prince and the, the queen and the, 
the princess and all that. They're never going to be a prince and princess of Wales who aren't white. So when we're going to talk about institutional racism, we need to go to another level here and get in to the reality of the fact that America is not racist. In fact, America is the only multicultural, multinational, integrated system of politics that exists in the world. You can't go to Nigeria and then look at the government who's running the government there and say, hey, there's no white people in here. This is racist. You can't go to Saudi Arabia and look around the, the monarch there, the king of, of Saud, right? You can't go and look at him and, and the king and say, look, there's no white or black people around. You just have Arabs only. This is racist. You can't go to Japan and look around in their legislature and say, I only see Japanese faces in here. This is racist. You see, you understand? Only in America where we have multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-racial groups of people living together in peace can we even bring up this issue this wedge issue this marxist wedge issue and the reason why i have to take slavery and separate it from the issue of race is because the two things are conflated together as if every person with some melanin complexion in their skin who has dark skin could, could somehow complain of past slavery which is it's not true you could you could be someone who is sub-saharan african and your people were never enslaved maybe your people did the enslaving in the past maybe your people were the, the zulu conquerors who who were the winners of the war and sent other people away and then maybe someday your your great grandchildren moved away to britain or to sweden or to America and live there and you have dark skin and you can't complain of slavery in your past because it's not there. You can't make it an issue if you're on the other side of it. There are, there are black people in America, black farmers who owned slaves and you used them and to, it fed them, took care of them and used them to build up their farms. So it's not just strictly an issue of melanin content in our skin when we talk about slavery and, and, to, and to conflate those issues and to bring it down to such an overly simplified, idiotic state of racial and social conflagration where it just creates problems. It just creates distress throughout the, the body politic. Instead of us being united together because we have a collapsing currency and we're going into a, a third world war and uniting together as one people, now we have these Marxist politics, these, these, these leftists trying to divide us apart from each other and have us suspicious of one another and introduce racism where it didn't exist and they call it anti-racism. You can call it, you can call it Mimu racism. You can call it whatever you want. It's still racism. Two negatives doesn't bring a positive. You can put anti, this, this prefix, and you can put racism together, but they're two negative terms and they don't make a positive. So this is the kind of ideological warfare and mental prison that these people are trying to, to just pigeonhole you into. Well, really what we need to focus on in this country, which is the more complex, the more prescient concept that we need to have in our minds is the fact that we have been losing our faith in our religious traditions, our Judeo-Christian roots and our heritage, that belonged to us. And when the, the people in the South, people who were black, who were brought in from the slave trade, when they got their Bibles in the South, began to read their Bibles and believe and have faith in, in Yahweh and the God of the Bible and the, the, the saving grace of Jesus Christ, when they began to believe that, it became their faith too. So whether the people were masters or slaves, they were in the same faith the same belief system together. And that was in instrumental in changing our history and allowing for the Emancipation Proclamation and, and Abraham Lincoln, another Protestant man, not a Catholic. Learn the difference. There is a difference. Catholics don't believe in a Bible. They believe in sacraments. They don't believe in scriptures or learning or reading the knowledge to be closer to God. They believe in just performing the rituals of the priests. That placates God. You do the ritual. You say the thing. You do, you do it like this. You kneel, sit, stand. Kneel, sit, stand. You do the practice and to please God. That's how they believe. That's how the Romans believe. The Protestants don't believe in any of that. Any, any practice or praxis or, or ritual or saying a certain rite. 
They just believe in doing good and following the words of Jesus Christ to the letter. And so when we get down to the letter of Jesus Christ's words, now we have an issue because we have this poisoning of religion and the poisoning of the Protestant biblical faith that was our, our good inheritance and good tradition that we received from God. And we have to ask ourselves, who has bewitched us? Who has taken us away from the original gospel of Jesus Christ that we learned, that we that this country and that the founding fathers established in faith, the knowledge of God and, and the biblical tradition. And we can see that over the course of time, we've departed from the Protestant freedom of mind and moved more closely towards the enslavement of religious ritual that, that Rome offers. So nowadays, every single holiday on the calendar is a Roman religion. St. Patrick's Day, that's Roman Catholic. St. Valentine's Day, see the saint part? That gives it away. St. Valentine's Day, Roman Catholic. And, and it's pagan too. So it goes back to this kind of erotic romantic see the word roman is in romantic so when we say oh it's romantic it's it's hot it's erotic sexy it's romanism so saint valentine's day is all that it's all for lovers and shoot shoot each other with little little arrows to the heart right isn't that just some kind of like deity who does that who shoots people through the arrow through the heart and they fall in love nothing in the bible then you have easter which is really the focus of our discussion today and then you have all you have all the you have this plague of false counterfeit roman rituals that are overtaking our calendar. They're changing people's minds. Even the calends. That's what the Romans had. They always had the calends. The calendar of, of religious rituals that they had to perform. They had to perform Saturnalia every year, right? If you didn't perform it, you could get arrested. You could be killed because you were, you were angering the gods if you didn't perform the rituals of Saturnalia, right? That's where we get this Christmas tradition, this Christ mass. They just put the Christ word in there and everyone just eats it. Christ is not a part of Christmas, guys. So once again, we need to break down this discussion and get a clear view of the terms, the lexicon of reality, and get a grip on our history so we can understand where we belong. We don't belong, if we're going to be Americans part of American revolution, revolting against King George III, revolting against the papacy, against the monarchy, the control of the king, who the, who the, the papacy commanded us to, to submit to. When we rebelled against the king of, of England, we rebelled against the Pope of Rome because these men were Protestant Bible believers. They were Baptists, Anabaptists. They were, they were, they were going to become Wesleyan. They were going to become Presbyterian. These were different sects of protestant religion that had separated from rome and that separation was good because joining with roman religion is against god it's unbiblical it's just a practice of roman paganism all over again and uh, and you, you have to be told that it's unacceptable for your your religious faith if you're going to practice true faith and please the lord and be close to him in reality and truth and in spirit you're going to have to accept that roman religion is not christian and to that end we have this entire episode where we're going to first take apart the most crucial aspect of romanism that really deceives pollutes and contaminates your relationship with jesus christ so we're going to take a closer look at easter traditions here and how they're really just an extension of roman paganism so I'll introduce this first clip, and it's Dr. Walter Veith, and he's going to do just a few minutes and a quick commentary, breaking down uh, a short kind of perspective on the Christian and biblical nature of Passover over and against the Vatican and, and, and uh, Gnostic papal practices of Easter and Lent, which are unbiblical, and they're basically super-added pagan rituals that were introduced into the Christian faith. Uh, by the Bishop of Rome or the, the papacy who who, uh, who ordained himself the uh, the bishop of the world and, and instructed all the other uh, churches and bishops of 
of, of the world uh, to submit to his international uh, leadership and purports to be the vicar of Christ and so on and so forth. So there's all this super added kind of uh, magisterium and mystery rituals and Babylonian and, and Egyptian sorcery that are introduced through uh, Mithraic rites and so on into the papacy. So it's, it's kind of our duty to unpack all that and make it plain to you. So first, let's listen to this short introduction uh, on these concepts by Walter Veith. Welcome to Bible Answers. We have a question here which reads, What is Easter? Where did it come from? And why does it always occur on a Sunday? Should we be celebrating Easter at all? Well, Easter is the feast that Christians today celebrate as the day of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But in the old days, the Jews kept the festivals according to the ceremonial laws. So the very important feast for them was the Passover. And this was determined by the sighting of the moon, so the moon cycle determined on which day this feast could occur. So it could occur on any day of the week. Now, on that special day, when Jesus was resurrected, it happened to be coinciding with the day after a literal seventh-day Sabbath. But thereafter, the cycle would have shifted. So the early church was still involved in keeping the Passover, and they used the date Nisan 14 in order to determine when the celebration should be. But very early on in Christianity, the Bishop of Rome decided that this celebration should not be determined by the cycle of the Jewish ceremonial days, but should always take place on a Sunday. And he made a law that it should always take place on a Sunday, and also banned anyone who didn't practice that which he preached. Now the Feast of Easter, as we celebrate it, really has nothing to do with the biblical day of the resurrection. In fact, the early Christians, they emphasized the, the Passover lamb, they emphasized the day of the crucifixion. But the new Christians in the papacy particular, was celebrating the day of the resurrection. And the rituals that go along with it are more akin to the ancient pagan rituals of the Feast of Easter, which is the goddess Easter, who came down in a cosmic egg, and therefore the egg became a symbol of Easter, and it was the death and the resurrection of Tammuz that was celebrated. So what we have done in modern times is paganized Christianity by bringing in pagan aspects in this worship. The Bible does not teach anything of this nature. So the pagan Easter should not be confused with the Passover and the day of the resurrection, which was the day of the first fruits. So, and this, this is the most fundamental, foundational, and essential nature of religious reality that we can really come down to discuss and bring into the focus here. So, 
the whole question remains that if you read and look and explore and discover God in the Bible, you'll see that he has particular set times, Moedim, certain set particular feast days and covenant days and certain memorial days and holidays that are set up in the Bible. And then there were all the other peripheral pagan nations, the barbarian Gentile nations like Babylonia, who had worshipped the, the sun and the moon and had Baal as their main deity. And of course, Baal had to have a counterpart, a female counterpart, uh, who was Ashtaroth. And so Baal and Ashtaroth were the male and female deities of Babylon, by which they would do all their sacrifices, human sacrifices, and by which they would um, sacrifice children and, and do all, all, all the different kind of bestial and profane practices and sex sex rituals. There were also the same thing going on in Egypt. Of course, they, they had their own sun and moon god who was going to be Ra and Isis and um, who were basically the same model as Baal and Ashtaroth. These were the pagan. And so the unclean practices of the heathens were always reprobate. And they were always they were always unclean and, and vile. And something we would think, the way, the way the practices of the Egyptians, the way they had incest and the way the different weird taboo things that they would do, something that we're, we, we don't consider to be appropriate in our culture because we're we're judeo-christian culture where we we come out of a worldview that hearkens and likens itself to the particular teachings of yahweh or elohim depending on how you uh how you want to call the name of god but the god of israel abraham isaac and jacob so this biblical god of all the legends of moses and king david and david and goliath and all these kind of immovable morals that are in our stories that teach us to to seek god and to be strong and to walk in the spirit of god and after his his righteousness and to be as god wants us to be when we begin to seek those dynamics in our lives and when we begin to look and see what god is all about then we begin to understand the truth and the truth is is the egyptians and the babylonians had something in common with the romans who were later the romans will come much later but they worshiped the sun and they made a deity out of the sun and for, for the greeks it was apollo polyon saul invictus the invincible sun god that's who it would be for the romans so the point is is that they would always celebrate the end of the year december 25th as the ceremonial rebirth of the sun god those are the three longest nights of the year we talked about this before this is when the romans would conduct saturnalia ancient feast of, of orgy of, of sexual uh, drunkenness and so on murders would occur of course it would last the whole week of course the babylonians and the egyptians did the same thing they worshiped in the same kind of profane drunken style at the end of the year when the three longest of the year and they considered that that this was the, the time when they would make sacrifices because you know they would eat drink and be married for they might on the next day die if the if the sun god wasn't reborn but of course the spring and the summer would come back each year and they would consider themselves to be under the auspices and the blessing of, of their of their deities the sun god and so on and so the feminine form would be the, the worship of the moon when you when a woman is on her moons it's estrus it's her period it's the same thing with um connecting that with isis and astar uh and ishtar and of course that's where you're gonna get the root word root word for easter of course if you go on the internet you'll find all this conjecture all this back and forth debating and quibbling about these facts but these are just the, the facts whether you, you could try to rewrite a revisionist history system they will try to displace this but the truth is is that easter is celebrated based on the moons so when you're on this system of worshiping that follows after the cycles of the moon and the sun, then you're on a Babylonian religious system. 
So this is what I've come to tell you is that this Easter practice, this Easter worship, the praxis of Babylon and Egypt has no place in in your life. If you're a, if you're a person who's dedicated yourself to the worship of, of the Most High God, God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, then you would reject these Egyptian pagan rites in your life and recognize them, see that God calls them out in the Bible and he, and he rejects them. So that, that's what the call of, of religion and true religion and faith is all about. It's about you overcoming the world and you have the power in you to overcome and you can see that that the Lord all around the, uh, Israel were, were these pagan nations where the Canaanites had been driven out to the Philistines for instance all the uncircumcised unclean heathen nations were worshipping on this system of sun worship they extended all around the world it was universal and of course Israel with the likes of King David and King Solomon and so on they would not worship after the system and after the gods or would they go to the altars of the gods of the sun and the moon and, and, and the astrological cycle and the systems of the heavenly hosts God asks us, requires us not to at any time fall down and worship or be caught up in a religious system that's based on the cycles of the planets and the sun and the moon and all the heavenly hosts. And God, that, that was God's, because for he made them. They were not made for us to wonder at and hold up as deities, but they were made for us as to be things that put are put under our dominion. So look in the astrological sun signs and so on on your horoscope and try to find some kind of fortune and try to read into it, into the into your stars, what your fortune will be, and, and to try to divine the future with fortune telling, like a seer, is the practice of Babylon and Egypt and Egyptian sorcery. And the whole point is, is that Israel came out of Egypt because of Passover, and they had to rely on the blood of the Passover lamb over their doorways to, to save their children and save them but they, so they could be saved. They were saved by the blood of the lamb that was put over their doorways. That's the symbolism of Passover. That's the symbolism that Yeshua, that Jesus Christ is associated with, not Easter. So that, that's what we're focusing in on today. We, I need you to focus like a laser beam. Learn the truth because our entire country and our, the fate of our entire nation rests on this singular fact. Uncoupling our religious doctrine from the heresy of the Vatican and the papacy. And as good as the priests may be and as loving as they may be in their ministry, God knows their hearts. They're on a fallen pagan system of Mithraic, occult, divination, and sorcery. Like we said before, Peter Noster and the seven sacraments are just totally aligned. And we'll go more into this in future episodes where we're going to take apart this ideology of Romanism that tries to claim itself to be 2,000 years old and to be the mother church of all churches and so on and so forth. Inside, that's the outer doctrine. Their inner doctrine is just the priestcraft of Rome, which which was really the rebirth of the priestcraft of Babylon. And we went all through this in past episodes and we discussed how the connection between Pontifex Maximus and those titles that were bequeathed to Rome that Julius Caesar took up that came from the legacy of Nebuchadnezzar's occult throne because in, in Babylon he set up his occult throne where he proclaimed himself to be the God-man high priest the Pontifex Maximus the great doorway between which God and humanity would, would be connected the great source of, of all authority over kingdom and over priestcraft will be headed up in this grand pontiff, which is, of course, one of the aspects of Freemasonry that will come later. So th- this is the kind of discussion that we have to have so we can have a mature outlook in the world. We, as Americans, are in a revolution that is Protestant and Baptist Reformation-based. Think about Protestant Reformation, which was a turning and a revolting and a separating. That's what the Lord says. I call you to separate yourself from the world and be with me and come join me. That's what you have to do. You have to separate yourself from these pagan practices that the world just universally enjoys with Christmas trees and Easter bunnies. 
It's not where you're going to find the Lord. And in order to make that calculation where you, you make your life easy and you make, you make it cozy and convenient and comfortable for yourself by just accepting the lie and going along with it and doing the Easter egg candy and all this kind of stuff just so you can be a part of the world system is not how you're going to be able to find God. And that goes for everybody in this country. We're going to lose our nation not because we didn't do diplomacy right or geopolitics right, deal with China and Russia. We're going to, we're going to lose our nation because we have abandoned God and he will abandon us. It'll be Ichabod. Okay, it'll be the power of the Lord and the spirit of the presence of God has departed and we're just empty. We're emptied out. We're abandoned. That's what's going to happen to this country. It doesn't matter what our founding documents were or how great it could have been. The reality is, is that we've aborted every fifth person in this country and there's blood. There's blood in the earth that cries out and God hears those voices of those people that were murdered. They're not just gone. Is it, wouldn't that be convenient for all these libtard women out there that are just, their, their vagina has become a, a gateway of death where 5, 10, 15, 20, 20 babies are just plucked out of their womb just so they can go back to, to, to rutting, go back to their disgusting coitus habits with just random people so they can just keep on being a whore, whoring themselves around, you know, at their own convenience, of course. And they don't want to be bothered with a baby. So that damn baby, just how these women, they were born out of their own mothers, but they have just turned away from motherhood and womanhood and femininity and the, and the power of that intuition and that spirit of womanhood is gone from them. Now they're just murderers and they're just, they're addicted to their own bodies, slavish desire and lust for for sex. And, and of course, just getting impregnated, you can't just be bothered with that. You can't be bothered with having to raise another human being into existence. Now, just cut it up like, like so much shredded uh, confetti and just throw it away. Let's just harvest the body parts now. Let's take out the baby and harvest the parts. Like some kind of cannibalistic, freakish, zombie society of, 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 of monstrosities that we've become in this age where, where technology was supposed to be such a promise of, of hope, future hope and, and, and wonder. And now it's just it's just a murder factory for, for babies to be terrorized before they go to their grave, before they get, get sent back to the Lord. They're, they're, they're cut to pieces. And they can feel, they can feel their sensitivity is more acute than probably any other time in their life as they're just vacuumed apart. And that... That conscience has just been so seared in our country that I, I'm you see what I'm saying? You see the situation we're in? We got to get on our knees and we got to seek God proper. And stop screwing around with this false Babylonian Vatican religion with these guys walking around in dresses with their weird magic sticks looking like wizards, wizards of uh, Harry Potter land. That's what these freaking priests, that they're just, they're harking back to a system of priestcraft of Rome. So you need to get it out of your system. It's addicted you and it, it's, it's an unclean spirit that's taken you. So it's time to look at what is the real holiday it's not easter but yeshua jesus christ as you have to say in these greek terminologies isus right yeshua the name joshua and yeshua in hebrew this man who's up on every catholic crucifixion just just you know he, he required in the commandments not to have any graven images but just it doesn't matter what he said what the only thing that really matters is that we just do it the way we want right that's how rome does it they'll, they'll have engraven images of him everywhere if they want if that's how they want it to be that's what they'll do so we're going to explore this whole topic more it's crucial for your faith and in, in approaching the lord and not and not being an unclean kind of like reprobate about your faith when you go to the Lord. Just saying a bunch of Hail Marys and Our Fathers. Go see three Hail Marys and four Our Fathers. You're absolved. That's not going to count in the courts of heaven. That's just some works of man. These sacraments are not, they're just magic rites that are not going to help you in dealing with the living God who knows your sins, who's not going to be satisfied with some absolution jerk off priest magic.
Okay, if you want to get your sins addressed with the Lord, you need to go repent and stop doing that shit. Stop doing that to your wife or to start coming through for your kids. Start changing your life the way you need it for it to be changed and do what's right. Because it says in the Bible, to him who knew it was sin and did it, to him it was sin. So if you knew it was wrong and you did it, you're guilty for that. And you need to go to, you're not going to be able to go tell some, some like weird uh, espionage agent in a booth for Rome over there where he's, you know, we just report all your, your, your thoughts and deeds to this weird uh, mind slave. It's really, it's the height of witchcraft that they're doing over there in these Roman churches. But nobody wants to admit it. It's got all this power over the city councils and over the, the different governors and all that. You're right. They have to they have to get down on the knee and, and kiss the ring of this system of Rome. But we as Americans, we don't have to. I don't have to. I'm not about to. So it's time for you to come out of that system and start to look at it for what it is. This Easter egg, Easter bunny cult. It's sick. It's not clean. It, it has been inculcated in, in your mind since you were a kid. You spent your entire life eating it, eating the little peeps because they're so yummy and eating the little the little candy and eating the little the little treats that they indoctrinate you with into your life. Since you're a baby, you don't even have time to think about it. You're brought into this way of thinking. So every time they bring it out, if you don't participate in it, you're going to start to feel like you miss it. You're going to start to feel depressed and lonely because you're, you're, you're not participating in something that you've been indoctrinated and inculcated your entire life to do. So you need to stop doing it. You need to start going to the Lord and seeing, seeing if there's anything about Easter bunnies in the Bible. See what the Lord's crucifixion, his passion, what his struggle against Rome was all about. So you can understand it. So you can see it clearly and understand Passover. There was a whole bunch of people in the city at that time. A whole bunch of people that were foreigners or Gentiles who were not necessarily of Judah, of the tribe of, of Judah. They were not Jews, right? They were just people who were coming into the city because they, they. it was a time to celebrate. It was a time to sell your wares and it's time for everyone to get together as a whole nation and as a whole group of people. And the fame of, of Jesus Christ was so great that people had come from far and wide, even from as far away as Rome, the, the capital, to, to participate and to see this man. So this is an important discussion that we have about what is the proper way to approach and celebrate and treat Jesus Christ and his death and his suffering and in his life and the way that he spoke about things and taught things. It's time to get that stuff clear. It's time to cut out the middleman. We don't need a, priest, a system of priestcraft in between us and our God. Now with that, I just want to take a moment to introduce the next clip. We're going to have a discussion here. And of course, this will be included in the show notes. So we're going to take another look at the biblical nature of Passover and the pagan Babylonian and Egyptian sorcery that is the actually beginning point of the Easter ritual. Well, today I want to talk about the origins of Easter. I want to talk about whether or not we find this day within Scripture or whether we find this day within pagan worship. And I want to remove the suspense. We, we don't find this day within Scripture. We find it within pagan worship through antiquity. Matter of fact, it goes back thousands of years, really. But, but today we're going to focus on the word Easter and the origins of Easter itself. And I want to read three different sources. The first one is from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, very, very reputable source, by the way. This is not a fringe reference. This is very reputable and recognized by most Bible believers. And here's what it says about the origins of Easter. It says, the English word, and again, this is Easter, the word, comes from the Anglo-Saxon Esther, or Estera, 
a Teutonic goddess to whom sacrifice was offered in April, so the name was transferred to the Paschal Feast. Now the word Paschal here refers to the Passover, not to the Easter. So we see here that Easter replaced Passover. Now we know historically and scripturally that the only day the apostles and the Messiah observed in the New Testament was the Passover. Never once do we find Easter. We know, I know it's in the King James, believe me, it's not in the Greek, it's not in the New Testament scriptures. It's simply missing from antiquity. So when did the church adopt the Easter celebration? Well, let's find out. I'm going to read another source here. This is from the New Unger's Bible Dictionary. Again, a very reputable source. It says the word Easter is of Saxon origin. It says Estra, the goddess of spring, in whose honor sacrifices were offered about Passover time each year. By the 8th century, Anglo-Saxons had adopted the name to designate the celebration of Christ's resurrection. So we see here, when this transition occurred, it occurred in the 8th century, hundreds, hundreds of years after Yahshua had come and gone. He was resurrected hundreds of years after this point to the church adopt Easter in his liturgy. And we see here that it adopted it from the Anglo-Saxons, from pagan worship. Well, I want to read one more reference. This is from the Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary. And here's what it says about Easter. It says, Easter was originally a pagan festival honoring Oster, a Teutonic Germanic goddess of light and spring, at the time of the vernal equinox, a day in the spring when the sun crosses the equator and the day and night are of equal length. Sacrifices were offered in her honor. As early as the 8th century, the name was used to designate the annual Christian celebration of the resurrection of Messiah. So we see here, again, when this transition occurred, it was the 8th century. Again, it's just amazing to me. You know, if you look at history, if you look at the Bible, what you come up with, and there's no denying the pagan origins of Easter. Again, this is not in the Bible. Uh, the Messiah and his apostles, they never observed this day, and even worse yet, according to all these references, and believe me, there's many, many more, confirming the origins of Easter. This came from the Anglo-Saxon pagan worship, and we find that it occurred somewhere around the 8th century. So very, very important. You know, as a believer, you know, and this is so, so important, so listen to this, this is so, so important. As a believer, it's critical that we worship our Father in Heaven as He defines within His Word. Because when we don't, when we worship another way, Yahweh says he, he, he has no honor for that, He has no respect for that, because He wants us to worship as He defines within His Word, not as our church may say worship is, not as our pastor or our minister may say worship is, no. We need to ignore all of that and look at Scripture and how He defines worship, and what we find scripturally, again, is that they observed the Passover, the feast days, along with the Sabbath, and not this day called Easter, which took 800 years, really, for the church to adopt and bring into its liturgy. Well, I pray that this has been a blessing to you. I pray that you've learned something today. I pray that you understand how important it is to worship our Father in heaven and in spirit and truth, as we find in the Word. When we worship Yahweh in paganism, listen, he has no regard for that. We know in Jeremiah 10, he says, learn not the way of the heathen as believers were to take that to heart so that was a very informative clip a little piece of audio we, we rely on these preachers these ministers and teachers who are aware of the way that history unfolded and the context of the uh, biblical record so we have to keep on pressing on and being relentless and pointing out to you that your relationship with God is lacking if you're introducing Roman religion into your faith. The city of Rome, the priestcraft, and the magicians and the sorcerers of Rome, and all their 
the magisterium of all their rituals. It has no place mixed in with a walk of faith when you're trying to be close to the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible doesn't have any interest in being mixed in with your pagan rituals that you learned from childhood. And it doesn't matter how tender and sweet and how, how your memories of Christmas candy canes and Santa Claus are just so wonderful and enriching. The point is, is that that religion is idolatry and it's unclean. It's luciferic. It's satanic. And you cannot have any power with God. And even if you babble in tongues and blah, 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 that has no power with God if you will not separate yourself from the unclean things of Baal. So this Baal worship, this Baal mass, this Saturnalia practices and rituals and rites of Rome, which they had bequeathed to them from the previous pagan systems in Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon, like we said. And we had tracked the entire history, which is an, an occult history of the occult throne of the Antichrist, the throne of of Satan that was established in opposition to God and the God of the Bible and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when King David was getting together his smooth stones, his five smooth stones so he could go and kill Goliath and kill his Goliath's brothers, he was killing the worshipers of Baal. And these Nephilim, and these fallen degenerate species that were empowered in Canaan, empowered in the Philistines and Phoenicia, and who made up the entire ancient world were, were in opposition to the God of creation and the God of the Bible. So that, that when we go back and look at the history of Nimrod and Semiramis, Semiramis, depending on how you want to pronounce it, and we look at their, their unclean relationship and their adulterous habits and the fornication that came out of that, and the, the, it, it has to do with the pagan occult trinity. So it's in Egypt, they practice it as Isis, Horus, and set. And in Babylon, we said before, the original deity and the father of Babylon was Nimrod, who is related to Kush, who was known in the Greek mythology as Chaos or Kronos. So, so there's all this backlog of pagan occult history that has been established for many centuries. And Freemasons learn all about it. But Babylon was set up under the worship that was arranged by Nimrod, who was the sun god who was worshipped as a sun deity, just like Nebuchadnezzar, just like Pharaoh, and he represented the sun god, and so just like his counterpart, Semiramis, she was represented by the symbol of the moon, and so was Isis in Egypt, and so was Ashtaroth in Babylon. And so it was these false gods, these false gods of astrology, who have the astrological astra, so the, the, the astarte. See what I'm saying? It's, that, it's the beginning of etymology of heathen idolatry that we're beginning to understand and so when you go for, when, when the language was when, when the languages were split up and there were people no longer spoke the same language across the earth which is a mysterious thing i mean if we evolved monkeys don't you think we'd have all the same root language so where, where do we get all these where do we get mandarin and cyrillic and latin and french See, see all the different languages? They're not even remotely alike. But as we go into these different cultural arenas in history, in Babylon, they have a different writing style and, and, and different language than in, from Egypt when they wrote in hieroglyphs. And the beginning of writing, the very beginning of writing, is really going to be taking place when Moses is copying down the words of God in the Torah. And so these words of God that Moses copied down after they left out of Egypt in the Passover event, the Passover lamb, which was emblematic of Jesus Christ, his, his ministry and his life. Those writings of Moses were totally condemning 
of Egyptian and Babylonian religion, calling it sorcery, calling it black magic, saying that you could not worship God and worship the stars and the sun and the moon. It's forbidden. It's forbidden in, in the Ten Commandments. It's, it's forbidden to have any other gods for the true God, the most high God. So this whole history, this background, and this primitive pagan mystery religion that you have inculcated into your faith, into the, the secular life of your of your nation and the practices, like painting Easter eggs. It's somehow trying to rectify that as being something to do with Jesus' resurrection and having a Christmas tree with all kinds of decorations on it and trying to rectify that and match it up to the birth of Jesus. That's what it means. That's what the, that's what the tree means. It means... So this is the, the hypocrisy and the sin that I'm exposing in your life. And you're at church, playing the tambourine, you're, you're clapping, you're singing the songs, and then they bring in the Christmas carols and the Christmas tree and the, the Romanism and the papal system of religious liturgy that you get from the Vatican, and they bring it right into your church, and they mix it in with your Christianity, and you just eat it and accept it. You're accepting poison into your system with the bread. And there you go. There's another thing. Everyone nowadays, they have to be like the Catholics, so they have to have like a little a little piece of bread and a little plastic cup of grape juice. And every every week, people start to, to take the communion. Of course, that's the sacrament of Rome. There is no taking communion and eating a little bread and then drinking a little a little grape juice and do this in remembrance of me and, and try to and just doing it every week and try to act like it's some kind of ceremonial magic, some kind of special ritual that brings you in to the community of Christ and and it brings you it brings you into communion it bring, what it does is it brings you into communion with Rome and you have people among you who are bringing you back under the control of Holy Roman of Holy Mother Church there that's what they're doing they're shepherding you right back into the doctrine and the ritual of the mystery religions that's what p the paganism of Rome is built on and that's what all the, these practices to do with Easter and you have to understand that they these priests these, these this priestcraft who was controlling Rome for all these centuries who were connected with the Gnostics with the Druids of Stonehenge are practicing the same religion when they set up their Stonehenge the, the stones there of the to match up with the same calendar of spring solstice and the spring equinox and solstice of winter and the same alignment that the pyramids are set up on. So the pyramids are set up on, on alignment with the solstice of the sun. So that spring period where the, the day and the night are the same length and that, that new morning when the new sun dawns, it aligns up with the Stonehenge. So the Druids are practicing the same religion. This is the same religion of Babylon, the same religion of Egypt when the Egyptians bow down to Ra and worship the sun god. Ra and Isis, the moon god. You see what I'm saying? It's all the same system with different cultural flair and different language distinctions, but it's exactly, precisely aligned and identical. And this system of astrotheology that was reigning over all the world continued to exist until Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel. They found themselves in Egypt and they were in captive in Egypt for, what, 450 years? A long time. Many generations before Moses came along and brought them out and brought brought them to their promised land. So it's it's crucial that you understand that this system of mystery religion, the zodiac calendar and the sun signs and the horoscope and the, all the magic of, of Egypt and Babylon and Assyria before it, that came out of Babel, the, the, you know Nineveh out of, from from Nimrod. That system was universal across the world until the arrival of Yahweh. Until the arrival of Yahweh. Until the people of Israel, the people of promise, had their covenant. And came into the land and they set up the temple and they set up for the first time the religion of the living God, the true religion of faith, the religion of the Passover. When you're doing the little communion wafer and the little cup of juice, and you're doing it like the Last Supper. The Last Supper is just a fallacy of Rome because the truth is, is there were 
practicing the Passover Seder. And the Passover Seder is the same exact meal of liberation and end of slavery, the slavery of the Egyptian imperial dominion and absolute religious control that God had saved his people from and brought them out. So Passover is remembering that. And that's what that's exactly when Jesus went into the city and that's when they betrayed him and that's when he was crucified and he died and he was resurrected after three days. It was during the Passover Seder. So if you want to do this in remembrance of me, when he said, do this, Passover, in remembrance of me. So he was making the association, I am the Lamb of God. It's my blood over your doorway of, the, of your heart that saves you from your sins and saves you from death. It's that relationship between Yeshua and Passover and his city of Jerusalem that's central. This part with Easter and Rome, they're not involved. So you're desecrating the nature of Christian faith by introducing Roman religion into it. Even if you do it you know, without knowing. Well, you've been told. I just told you. So stop doing it. It's, if you look at the scriptures, God compares it to adultery. Like when you're, you, you have a spouse and the spouse cheats on you with someone else. Has their intimate intercourse and their sweaty sex and orgasm, right? And lovemaking with somebody else, not the spouse. See, that, that's, that's, that, wouldn't that make you jealous? Wouldn't that make you upset and angry if somebody betrays your, your relationship like that? That's how God considers it to be when you introduce this fallen, idolatrous, perverse system of religion into your Christian faith and then want to go to God and be like, Lord, uh, listen to my prayers. The Lord's not listening to your prayers. All these churches out there with the, the Easter egg hunt and the Christmas trees, your church is dead. It's Ichabod. The presence of the Lord has departed from you. That's why your churches are dead. There's no revival. There's no miracle power. You, you can do tongues all day and do, go purple. But God is not hearing you. He's not hearing your prayers and you don't have any power with him until you turn away from Babylon. Until you turn away from Rome. That's what that's what Peter called Rome was the new Babylon. So it's time for you to make the connection. Don't Peter wasn't the first pope. Peter wasn't in alignment with Rome. He wasn't there to become to to give credence to the system of perverted priestcraft. And and they were perverted. And during this particular spring equinox or whatever what what have you, when when the priests would do their rituals, they would take the hories or the the ritual ceremonial virgins and they would rape them. They would impregnate them. They would have sex with them. They would have ceremonial sex, magic intercourse, if you will, with these virgins. And then nine months later would be right around December 25th, which would be the, the longest night of the year and the shortest day. So the daylight is very short and the night is very long. And at that point, they thought that that if they didn't do these rituals, that they didn't placate the sun god and do the, the spiritual duty of their priestly craft... They believed that the, the sun god would not be reborn, and they would be just, they would be doomed. So that that was the nature of the deception. That was the nature of their fallen religious system that was set up by Nimrod. And it's time that somebody finally told you. So here we have to offer another little clip here, and we want to give you a very accurate biblical exegesis and the exact truth when it comes to eschatology concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of the word of God. And there's a lot of people out there that are playing religion, they're playing churchianity, they're trying to take their religious services and line them up with with uh, 
the Vatican, with the teachings of the United Nations, and with you know global world goodwill, and the World Council of Churches, and just so they could be a part of the system and have the Easter Bunny out there, and, and really they're corrupting the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth of the whole issue, which is really what the devil is all about. The devil in his system of Babylonian mystery religion is there to corrupt and to decay and break down the word of God and the truth that's there. So we're going to hear, we're going to bring it and, and keep it alive and remind you once again about the nature of this, these whole, all these issues. So let me offer this interesting clip here. And we have to break down what is most important, truth or tradition. Abraham Lincoln said it this way. He says, the best way to destroy your enemy is to make him your friend. At the end of the day, ladies and gentlemen, the enemy only comes to do three things. To steal, kill, and destroy the truth. That's what he's trying to do. So now let's travel back in time, 4,000 years, and begin to discover where the history of some of these traditions came from. We're going to find ourselves all the way back in the time of Noah. Matter of fact, let's begin in the old-fashioned way. Once upon a time, a long time ago, there lived a man named Nimrod. Nimrod was the great-grandson of Noah. He was the most popular man on the earth at the time. Matter of fact, he was the king of the then-known world. He was responsible for building the cities of, of Babel, and uh, the Tower of Babel, and the city of Nineveh, amongst others. Well, all that being aside, Nimrod, no doubt, had tremendous influence among the people that he was with. And what happened was, uh, he had this an uncanny uh, reputation of strength. Uh, he created great uh, armies, and uh, he, he was the ruler of the then-known world right after the flood. He was full of idolatry and covetousness, drunkenness, and uh, rebelliousness, rebelliousness towards God. And he had a phenomenal ability to deceive. As a matter of fact, I suppose he was much like, a, I guess, an early politician 4,000 years ago. But Nimrod married a woman named Semiramis. Now, Semiramis and, and Nimrod would became basically king and queen of the then-known world. Well, at some point, Nimrod dies, and he became deified. He was the very first person that was ever deified on planet Earth, and they made him the sun god, which ended up being Baal. The word Baal in your scriptures can be traced back to Nimrod, so it's an interesting uh, reality of history when you see Baal and Ashtaroth, you're ending up coming all the way back to this story of Nimrod and Semiramis. And so Baal is now ruling the universe as the sun god, and somehow luck has it that the Babylonian legend that Semiramis gets pregnant by the rays of the sun of her deceased husband, Nimrod. And she gives birth to a young baby boy named Tammuz. Now, further down in the story, as Tammuz grows and becomes a man, Tammuz actually marries his mother, and they have a very uh, sexual relationship. And that baby Tammuz and his mother Semiramis is where you get the story of Cupid. Cupid, it, during Valentine's Day, is how the story of Valentine's Day developed was from uh, Tammuz, who married a, a very uh, unbiblical relationship uh, with his mother. 
Okay, back to the story of Tamu. So Tamu, for 40 years, was a tremendous hunter, and he took the place of his father, ruling the world, and had tremendous power. But more than anything, he was a credible hunter. But unfortunately, his gift and his skill of hunting caught up with him one day because he was killed during his 40th year by a wild boar. Every spring, uh, the first Sunday after the vernal equinox, the spring equinox, they have what was called Ishtar's uh, Ishtar's Sunday. And they would have a sunrise service. At the sunrise service, the priest of Ishtar uh, would impregnate young virgins on the altar. And during that same service, they would take the babies that were now three months old from the previous year, and they would sacrifice those children on the altar to Ishtar. And then they would take the eggs of Ishtar, and they would dip those eggs in the blood of those young infants. And that is where we get sunrise services, and uh, that is potentially where we get the dying of Easter eggs. It is also interesting to note that worldwide, universal color of Easter eggs is red. Even the White House, the official color of the White House Easter egg is ruby red. Now, back to Tammuz. Tammuz gets killed by a wild boar. So every year in commemoration of celebrating the death and the deification of Tammuz, which became the son of God, the son of his father, they would set aside 40 days prior to Easter, in, and they would fast, and they would pray, and they would have a giant feast on Easter Sunday, where they would celebrate the, the death and the resurrection of Tammuz. And guess what they would have for dinner on that Sunday evening? You got it, Easter ham. They would kill a boar in commemoration to Tammuz, who was killed by a wild boar. And yes, the 40 days prior to Easter, uh, where we call it Lent, or the Catholics call it Lent, that 40 days did not come from, my friends, the 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness. That 40 days was already in place for thousands of years before Jesus even showed up. It comes from the 40 days of fasting and praying for Tammuz before they celebrated Easter. I'm going to give you some of the names and, and what they're most commonly uh, remembered for in these different cultures, and some of you will recognize them immediately. First of all, in Egypt, they were known as Isis and Osiris. In Phoenicia, they were recognized as Asheroth and Baal, the very same Asheroth and Baal that you see in the scriptures. In Greece, they were Aphrodite and Adonis, or Eros, where we get the word erotic from. And in Rome, they were called Venus and Cupid. That's right. That's where we get Valentine's Day from and Cupid. Even in the Far East, listen to this. This is amazing. Cupid was known as Zoroaster. Zoroaster is made up of two words. Zoro, which means seed of, and Asheroth, which is Eastern. And so what Cupid actually means in the Far East is the seed of Easter, or the seed of his mother. And God always tries to speak to the Israelites and warn them to stay away from Ashtaroth and Baal. Let's read the scriptures. Judges chapter 2 verse 13 says this, And they forsook Yahweh and served Baal and Ashtaroth. 1 Samuel chapter 7 verse 4 says, Then the children of Israel did put away Baalim and Ashtaroth, 
and served Yahweh only. And last but not least, in Romans chapter 11, verse 4, it says, But what says the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Right about this time, you're probably having that thought that I warned you about hit your brain, saying, that's not what it means to me. I celebrate the birth of Jesus, and I put all the focus on Jesus, and I celebrate his resurrection, his resurrection, and I want to focus on him. Well, your heart may be to want to focus on him, and you absolutely may do that. But the truth of the matter is, is that it doesn't matter how much we focus, how sincere we are, and how pure our hearts are. It only matters that are we worshiping him the way that he asks us to worship him, and is anything that we're doing offending him? So we're at this point in the program where I have a lot of more material to go through. Perhaps we'll do another segment like this soon. But it's, it's crucial that we begin to articulate the, the different terms and the conditions and the different symbolic attributes of the struggle that we're facing here in our country. Because we've given over the true worship of our biblical Christianity and the true worship of our and, and devotion to our Lord and uh, the biblical account of, of, of creation and all the law and the prophets and this this record of the appearance of the Messiah and the sacrifice he made on our behalf so that we could have eternal life, that, the whole gospel message. And we've come to a place in our country where we're originally founded on the sure footing of, of, of doctrinal truth by righteous men, men who lived accountable to the precepts and the teachings and the expectation of righteousness that are laid out in the Bible. And we've come to a point now where our nation has completely fallen, and we've turned our back on God and begun to take up these pagan ritual, these unclean, esoteric mystery practices of Egypt and Babylon. And we've done it in an ignorant way because the system of occult power that underpins all the different ways that we expect to see church conducted, even the day on Sunday, the Roman holiday, the entire construct of our religious apparatus in this country has been completely debased and people don't even know it. They get up and they go in and do Sunday worship and they do the, they paint the Easter eggs and they, they put the mistletoe over the doorway and they, they do the Christmas tree. They do all these different obscene and profane rituals of Babylon. And then when consequently, when the presence of God leaves out of our lives and we're left alone and the, the debauchery and the perversity and the nature of, of corruption, which is beginning to overtake our country, begins to come into fruition, people are amazed. And they rush in to buy even more Christmas presents and, and do even more Easter traditions and, and celebrate the Easter Bunny even more. And they, they fail and they refuse to accept the fact that they've fallen away from and backslidden away from God. So now it's time for you to admit it to your friends and to your neighbors and the people around you and your family that it's time to return to God. It's time to repent, to return to the highest place where we began, where this country began, where the, the documents and the founding inspiration and philosophy of biblical freedom was established here in this country. And it's time to return to that, to turn our backs once again on, on the evil and the wicked nature and the profane character of sin that's overtaking America. So with that, we're going to begin to end the episode. I have one more little audio clip that I want to add in here. And this particular fellow is going to point out the scriptural nature of truth and the necessity of getting ourselves right with God so that we can have revival in this country again. Many people know that Easter and other religious holidays 
have ancient pre-Christian origins. That's not a secret. You can find that in any encyclopedia, any place online. It's all out there. But here in the book of Ezekiel, we find evidence for that. We see some of the origins of it. One of the things that he sees is what we will look at and understand as a typical sunrise service. The scripture says there in Ezekiel 8, Ezekiel says that God brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And he went into this large area and he said, Behold, at the entrance to the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men. This is what Ezekiel said he saw. Those 25 men had their backs to the temple and their faces were toward the east, it says, worshiping the sun toward the east. He sees a sunrise surface. Their backs to the temple show that they have their backs toward God as they're watching the sun come up. Now every year on Easter Sunday in all parts of the world, you will see people go out at sunrise on Easter Sunday morning to a service to watch the sun come up if it's a, a cloudless morning in a service that they, they have, thinking that they are worshiping at the very time of Christ's resurrection. They're actually wrong. Now, it might seem shocking to some, but it's the truth. Now here in Ezekiel, as he was watching this take place, he saw people turning their back on the temple, on God, and in effect bowing down before the sun in a sunrise worship, something that they were never supposed to be doing in that place at all. Now, there was something else that Ezekiel saw in addition to the sunrise service. He was taken into another part of the temple, and there were a group of women weeping for Tammuz. Weeping for Tammuz. This is in chapter 8 of Ezekiel. Now, who is this Tammuz? Tammuz was a Babylonian god of the pastures and of the flocks, of things that grew. Depending upon the story and the, the recounting of it, he was the either the husband or the brother of another goddess named Ishtar. Uh, another name for her was Ashua, and she was a goddess of fertility. Tammuz, her brother or her husband, depending on the story you might hear, Tammuz would die every year in the autumn when the vegetation withered, when everything fell from the trees, harvest was over, and his departure through that death into the underworld brought about a change. His recovery by the, the morning Ishtar was part of the story as well, because in the springtime, Tammuz would return to the upper world, the fertilized upper world, just as everything was coming back to life. Now, the Babylonians taught that Tammuz was mystically revived from death in the spring by the crying and the anguish of this Ishtar. So these women that Ezekiel saw crying for Tammuz were mimicking what the story told about Ishtar did this. Ezekiel's vision shows the details of idolatrous worship occurring in the temple where God had dwelt through the Spirit. Remember at the beginning, I was telling you that God's presence, the Spirit was lifted up off of the temple and even off of the city. God had been there. God's presence was among those people. But Israel had traded the worship of the one true God for the worship of idols of all the nations around. 
And Tammuz was but just one of the many false gods worshipped at Babylon and other places. And this myth of Tammuz and the, the weeping of worshippers is really nothing but a clever counterfeit of what was to come with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, sent as the sacrifice for the sins of mankind. Here, long before Christ ever came and walked this earth, was a counterfeit story in this pagan myth. The Bible tells us that Christ was the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. All of this was in place before God created man in his image. The foundation of eternity was laid. The sacrifice of the Son of God was there in place as part of the purpose of God for all mankind. Satan the devil, who has deceived the world, counterfeit this perfect sacrifice of Christ ages before Christ ever walked the earth as God in the flesh. And God had told his people don't have anything to do with these myths, this type of false worship, and yet they did. This deception with Tammuz was adopted by Israel. You know what they did? It was an unheard of act. God says this in another location in Scripture when he's pleading with him. He says, this has never happened before. You trade a worship of the true God for a lie. That's what they did. And they began to worship idols. And you know, in the Scripture, we're told that when one worships idols, false gods and images, it's the same as worshiping demons. Spiritual wickedness had been unleashed upon Israel by what they did. And a line had been crossed. And God came to a point where he removed his presence and his blessing. The nation was finally crumbling, beginning to disappear. Now what's this mean for us today? What's the lesson that we need to make? This is ancient history, but is there a lesson for us? There is. You know, we look at America today, and we look at our world conditions, and we wonder what has happened. I hear that question all the time. As I listen to people who are the expert class uh, discussing things that are going on, I ask it, you ask it as well. What is happening? We see moral, social, spiritual confusion reigning in so many different places. The familiar world that we have been a part of has been turned upside down. We've watched for months as a pandemic has reordered the global structures of our world and continues to do so. The rule of law in many places, especially in America and certain of its cities, has broken down. We look at the, the moral social uh, structures that are, that are being changed. We see that God's created order of male and female created in the image of God, is being dismantled. These colors designating male and female by some teaching prevalent today, that's wrong. That's wrong. The angel of death is visited upon babies as they are ripped from the womb of their mothers. And evil reigns as many good people like you, like so many, Wonder why. What's going on? What has happened? It is time, and 
this is what I want to do with this program, what we're discussing here today. It is time to make a connection of all of this to the false worship of our religious holidays of Easter and Christmas and others. And it's time to really have a frank talk regarding that. Do you keep Easter? Do you understand what's behind Easter? You may think that you do. But the truth is shocking. As I said earlier, a lot of people know these things are pagan. They have their origins. But the truth is really important. It's shocking. Here's another question. Does Easter please God? By what we do and what we adopt. Easter contains detestable things. Like what Ezekiel saw in the temple when God took him there, women worshiping Tammuz and bowing down to the east and worshiping the sun. Those rites, those activities, drive away the presence of God, just like they did during the time of Ezekiel. 